but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And we are wishing you a happy Pride. Happy Pride. Mm -hmm. This is sort of an in-between episode. I don't even know what this episode is. It's like the French is over, Wimbledon hasn't started, and we have to do something. This episode is Jonathan's been keeping track of stuff, and there's stuff that needs to be said, and so you are handed an agenda. <laughs> True. And given a time to show up. But I did have to fill in a lot. I did my research. I took valuable time when I should have been working. Mm. You should have been. You've been not working a lot this week mm -hmm. at work. This might be the most tennis you've watched all year this week. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Yeah. I watched Venus a few times, watched Felix and Tsitsipas today, Andy and Feliciano. That was not safe for work, let me tell you, for a number of reasons. If you've ever wondered how the the coming together of the show works, typically I start an agenda right after the release of the latest episode and just jot things down in a Google document that I share to you and you completely ignore it until I say, well, you know, we're recording tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And then you go and fill in everything and get caught up. You know, everyone has a process, <laughs> an artistic process. I don't know if this was on, on the docket for the last episode and we bumped it because we've been a little bit too loquacious lately. Mm -hmm. We have. Yeah, we're going to keep this a little bit more concise. So this may not be as fresh to some, but it's new territory for us on the show. This whole Labor Cup now being enshrined as an official ATP event and the kicker points are now, well, not points. Uh, just just a head to head head record. to head yeah if it were points as well that'd be wild <laughs> <laughs> retroactively retroactively <laughs> now the atp magically one day the head to head of certain players has changed because labor cup is now counted mm -hmm. making labor cup an atp event i think was kind of always in the cards you could see it coming the ATP was always reluctant to call this an exhibition. That was a dirty word around Labor Cup. And the fans bought into it too. Right, Remember right. all the, the hoopla and infighting almost about, well, it's a tournament. No, it's an oh, exhibition. Oh my god. Yeah. And the fact that it's associated with Roger Federer, of course, lends it some import. He is influential. He got some of his powerful friends to come play with him. And uh, they took it seriously, right? So the fact that it's become an ATP tournament... It's not a huge shock, and it's not uh, a huge problem. No. The problem is, is retroactively assigning more importance to the matches themselves. So players didn't go into the matches thinking, this is part of my official head-to-head. -head. They didn't qualify for that tournament, that exhibition right. at the time. They were paid handsomely to show up. Well, it's invite-only. Right? Like, there are a lot of things that make it different from other main tour events, which is fine. Davis Cup is different from other main tour events. But uh, it, it comes off as a bit of an elite event, right? But not necessarily, like, the best players on the year. It's the best players who are the most popular and who they could get to come. Or, yeah, who has free time to do it. Right. And honestly, I 
could care less. Was it couldn't care less? Couldn't. I couldn't care less that this is an ATP event, that it'll be part of the head-to-head going forward. But this whole business of retroactively changing head-to-heads is mad to me. It's madness. How can you make something have weight now when that's not what people thought was going to happen going in? Like, do you think somebody might have played a little bit harder in that event had they known that, well, hey, almost two years later, your head-to-head and overall ATP record is going to be different Mm. now? Well, the point is that we'll never know. And John Wertheim talked about this in his most recent mailbag, saying that, again, like like us, he doesn't have a problem with making it an ATP event. The issue is altering the historical record, like changing the uh, the meaning of things that have already happened. And his suggestion is, okay, going forward, why don't we keep a separate historical record for Labor Cup? As if it's a, a sanctioned league event like the All-Star Game in NBA. Right, so the stats don't count. You know, they don't count to your points per game or whatever, but they keep a separate statistical record for this event. I don't even care about that. <laughs> <laughs> Just decide on what you're doing and then everybody knows going forward. The really vexing part of this is that John Isner now has an official win over Rafael Nadal. I was not prepared to see that. I, I can't even... Again, I'm at this place in my life where there's so few things I can make room for to be annoyed and upset about that I, I just can't with that i can't what you're <laughs> right. saying to me here is that you're bringing john isner into my personal space unwarranted mm. right now and that i resent i see wasn't even on my radar <laughs> last week there was a thought experiment going on on tennis twitter making the rounds having to do with tweaks to the current ranking system uh the idea being let's let's make it uh, a two-year ranking system rather than just one year worth of results. Mm-hmm. And you came out initially, seemingly, maybe I'm misreading, on the side of favoring it, or at least seeing merit in it. Right, so here's how it happened. Vashak Pospisil kind of went on a spree and was throwing out ideas. It was almost like he was creating a platform for his role on the Players' Council. Like, these are all the things that I believe in, and this is what we're going to try to get done on Players' Council this year. You know, he was talking about things that matter to lower-ranked players, one of them being the, a two-year ranking system. And I've seen a lot of uh, dismissal of this idea on its face, like sort of a knee-jerk reaction. And I really am not invested either way. I was just surprised that it was so vociferous against the idea of a two-year ranking system. If the players tell you that they want it, and I don't I don't know what the players believe en masse, but it is... a. Uh, it's reasonable to look into it, right? One of the big pushbacks was, okay, fine, you have this two-year ranking system. Now Jack Sock is still, like, top 15 based on the <laughs> end of was, season he was in top 10 for, like, way yeah. too long, even on the current ranking and system. And I feel like that's... While, that it's, while that's a very good example to use, if you are in that camp to think it's crap... I don't think most people who would be in his position would be A, somebody of the generally despised ilk of Jack Sock, or B, somebody who didn't necessarily fit the bill of a top 10 player, Jack mm. Sock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, the Sock example is such an outlier, and that's why it's exactly. so easy to pull yes. it up, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is fresh in your mind. It's an aberration. When in fact, I think it would benefit a lot of players who have injury concerns. 
Right. And there, there are folks who say, well, they come back and they get special exemptions and protected rankings and all that stuff. But those things are finite. We know over the course of a tennis season just how many difficult things, seen and unseen, that tennis players go through, let alone when you're coming back from injury. So that would be a nice safety net for somebody to have. Mm-hmm. The other question is, should there be a protected seeding? which you know was touched upon when Serena was coming back from maternity leave last year at Wimbledon especially, and she was seated. Is it fair to people who would be sort of booted out? Is it also fair, this is something I heard, for somebody like Felix, who has had the majority of his big results in the last six months, it would be much more difficult for him to move up the rankings. Mm-hmm. And he, like, he has shot up the rankings now. He's in the 20s will probably get better than 20 this week with his results. Uh, so you could say it, uh, it is less exciting for fans because these young phenoms are going to take a long time to build their ranking. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to rebuild a ranking on a two-year system. I don't think it is a disincentive because there are so many incentives like money to I'm, play well. I'm less concerned about that because in, somebody, in the case of somebody like Felix, you imagine his results will be sustained. Mm-hmm. So his ranking would just be deferred a little bit. Right. I think where it becomes a little bit dicey is when you get to, to slams and seedings at big tournaments, you kind of want and maybe just expect that the seedings will reflect who, for the most part, the hottest players on tour are. Mm. The players who stand the best chance of going deep into these tournaments, which is kind of the whole purpose of the seedings, right? To To, dif- to, to give a little bit of a a bonus safety net reward for mm-hmm. your your top play. But that would then be delayed a little bit. And so you might end up with folks being seated who aren't necessarily in the best form at these tournaments. That's like the biggest drawback, I think. Right. But the Grand Slams reserve the right to alter seedings how they like. Wimbledon does it, as we know. The men's side has a formula. The women's side, they can mess with it as they see fit, like in the committee. The, on the women's side, they they don't frequently change the seedings, but they can. So I actually like if there is a two-year ranking system, there could be more freedom within tournaments to change seedings to do more of like a power ranking sort of thing or like mm-hmm. a surface power rankings if it's a specialized natural surface like grass or clay. It'd be key to have transparency with that. Yeah. And yeah. also, I think if a two-year system were to be implemented, it would, it would there would have to be some kind of waiting involved w-e-i-g-h-t oh right right like last year's events are 50 percent or or 25 percent or something uh there's there's a lot of things that can be done to maybe address this issue if it is indeed an issue that people are concerned about like you said it was just a little bit surprising to see it dismissed out of hand so quickly yeah i understand like from a fan perspective it it makes it a little more challenging to promote the sport Especially like next generation, if it's going to take next gen so long to build a ranking. So let's say Stefanos Tsitsipas was still in the teens or 20s, despite his stellar play over the last year. Would that ring a little false? And I totally get that. Would it ring a little false with them getting to quarters and semifinals and being in a lot of places walloped by still the big guys? Mm. Mm -hmm. Or is it even just as useful for the promotion of of that sect of the ATP, the the next gen, to have them maybe, you know, make more second and third rounds and 
play the big guys and get that experience and beat them once or twice before mm. getting to the upper echelons. Okay. Well, because I feel like one of the things that the the ATP is struggling with now, despite this young crop having superb results, a lot of them breaking through, we still haven't seen them break through at the top, top level yet. And so you still are left with this maybe a bit of an unfair narrative that it's still the big fours game, that they're not quite ready yet. You know? Right. Like, there, there's a different way to look at all these problems, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, right now we're seeing number five and number six players straight-setted by 33-year-olds, 37-year-olds in majors, right? So I don't know. Like, I don't know what the right answer is, or even if this is a pressing issue. It's just the uh, the discussion was interesting to me. And I sort of put it out there and let people talk about it in my mentions and stole all their good ideas. <laughs> no, but I appreciate it. I didn't Thank really... Thank you, Jay. You, you, yes. you had a lot to say. I didn't really chime in on the discussion because I just wanted I wanted to hear what people thought. Something that Caitlin Thompson at the main draw uh, has said a lot of times is that she always likes to defer to what works best for the players. The players are out here working and they're the ones who create the product like, what is best for them? And uh, it got me thinking, like, what if this is better for them? What if this allows people to sustain a career for longer and stay on their feet while they're injured? Because what is universal in tennis is that all tennis players have injuries. Mm-hmm. What is not universal is that some can afford to wait out those injuries. Yeah. Like, the privilege gap is massive, right? That's a key point, because if you know you have a year's worth of good points... You might be less inclined to rush back in year two because you have that that cushion right. rather than have it be a one-year system where you know oh my god those points are dropping off i need to get more points so that when those drop off in four months i'm still okay mm-hmm. or if you're someone who's like well i know i'm gonna get wild cards everywhere so it's fine i can just wait you know that's a huge kind of wealth gap in tennis so there you have it maybe this won't even pop up again <laughs> i don't know if it's a serious thought in this pride month Kevin Anderson is out here being an ally yet again. Yeah, The Guardian wrote a, uh, ran a story recently talking about Anderson's kind of activist tendencies, I would say. And it wasn't just about the, the gay issues. He talked about apartheid, of course, being a white South African. He and his, his wife, Kelsey, have been on the uh, charity kick for pet shelters. And also they're activists about sustainability in tennis and calling out the you know extreme wastefulness of plastic bags and bottles and all those things so kevin sees his role as a tennis player as his job and he has many many other passions Mm -hmm. i was heartened to see that it wasn't just a one-off cute little two-month spurt that he had Mm -hmm. with his activism that it's something that is ongoing something that's important to him and that he's not afraid to be pegged with the gay ally tech. You know, it's one thing to talk about it once, but to be keep on talking about it and to be so specific about it and uh, supportive about it, it's it's not nothing. And he seems to really understand the anxieties that might follow somebody who is thinking about coming out in a men's sport, especially. He cited Jason Collins talking about how scary it was in a, in a team situation, knowing you'd have to have like deep bonds with these men you'd have to be in the locker room it's almost like a family and would i be would i still be part of that family that might sound a little bit precious if that's even the right way to describe it but in fact these are things that 
gay people do think about mm. when they're in the closet and playing sport. Even not even just in sport, just in general. Something else that kind of sprung out of seemingly nowhere this week was this whole U.S. Open coaching from the stands business. Apropos of nothing, it was kind of like a French Federation Bernard Giudicelli move. Like, hey, over here, we still exist. We're not in the news cycle, but we want to really just rock your world right now. Do you know that meme, uh, no one, colon, and there's nothing, and then U.S. Open this like nobody was asking for (laughs) this like literally nobody was asking for this we had hoped that this had blown over the thing that we'd always heard about was on-court coaching but i guess this was a more universal way to deal with both tours at the event so this now this is called in-match coaching so the u.s open apparently had been lobbying the grand slam board behind the scenes for a little while now before there was any announcement made that they were going to allow in-match coaching which means that a coach could basically shout from the stands, gesture, coach, whatever, during a match. Christopher Clary in the New York Times points out that the U.S. Open could make this change, but it would require unanimity among four Grand Slams. So, for example, Wimbledon could say, well, we don't like that. They could even say, we don't like that for you at the U.S. Open, therefore we are going to block it. Isn't it? That's interesting, right? They wouldn't even have to adopt it themselves. They could block another tournament from doing it. And, of course, there is a lot of resistance among the British old guard to something like this. Because for a lot of people, it violates something sanctified about tennis. The problem-solving by yourself on court. Where this becomes tricky for a lot of folks is it feels like it's in direct response to what happened at the US Open last year with Serena. And it then kind of makes it feel or it it cements this idea that Serena was receiving coaching from the stands that that was the main issue that that was what needed to have been fixed to have avoided all of that when in fact there was a whole lot more at play Mm -hmm. it's convenient to you know use her pictures to evoke the U.S. Open final last year because it is newsworthy whether we like it or not whether it's annoying to see this rehashed it is newsworthy because she's one of the most famous people in tennis. On the planet. Uh, right. And it's not helped by the fact that Patrick Muradoglu is one of the chief defenders of in-match coaching. He thinks that it should be made legal. That coaching is rampant. It's ubiquitous. He says every coach coaches during matches, which is patently false. It is, it is rampant. As you can see, if you have watched tennis, if you've been to live tennis... You can see that it's rampant, but not every coach does it. A lot of them do, but not every coach. So I object to that. But the thing that irks me about Muratoglu is that he got caught doing something against the rules, and his solution is to both change the rules and blame everybody else, because supposedly everybody does it. The fact is, everybody does it. Like, not everybody, but like, everybody generally does it. And so it's almost like a joke, like a a joke in tennis circles, right? And we know this. We've talked about this. We've seen it. And so, given that that is a fact, and another fact is that it's against the rules, how do you deal with this? It is something that needs to be dealt with because we see how, given that it's umpires who are left to litigate it within the course of a match, that becomes subjective. People are then taking into consideration the the state of the match the state of the tournament, 
or not doing any of those things and being super stickler for the rules? Mm. And are they being super sticklers then as opposed to other times? Like, there's no way to have a uniformed, fair enforcement of this rule. So what do you do? No. I don't think that this is a change that would have been made addressing a problem that doesn't exist. It does exist. Right. I think we can universally agree on that. But is this the solution? It would help in that if everybody's allowed to do it, then we just can't complain about it anymore. Like, it just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but Federer made a good point. He said that I have the best coaching team in the world. I don't think it's fair for me to be able to have that at my convenience and disposal during a match when I might be playing somebody who has no coach. Right. So that's a good point. Not everybody has a big team to draw on during matches. That's a disadvantage. I mean, personally, I don't like it. But what I like and don't like has very little bearing on tennis. And this, to me, has to come from what will, A, benefit players the most, and B, benefit the packaging of the sport. And so someone like Patrick is always talking about, well, this is going to draw new fans into tennis. We need to learn how to promote the sport to younger people. And there's just always an absence of evidence, right? I never, like, we never know if that is true or not. The thing that's foremost on my mind now with a lot of these issues involving coaches is I want these coaches to have less of a prominent role in the publicity of tennis. I don't think having super coaches and coaches with huge egos, coaches who are omnipresent, whose influence extends far beyond behind the scenes is a good thing. I, I don't yeah. like that. Yeah. And so if, if we're going to be having a situation where the cameras are cutting to the coaching boxes more to then make the coaches more part of the game, I'm not into that. I'm very much into these coaching roundtables that we get at WTA events now, three or four times a year. That's amazing. That's the kind of insight into the coaching player dynamic that adds layers and texture to the, the public discourse around tennis. But to have tennis coaches more front and center is a bit much for mm-hmm. me. And really, it seems like the only people calling for more coach visibility are coaches, star superstar coaches. I just don't know that audiences like, you know what we need to see more of in tennis, which would make me more interested, is more of the coaches yelling things during a match. It only seems like a solution to this problem of enforcement. It doesn't seem like it adds any entertainment value, at least to me. It does expose the hypocrisy in tennis. Sasha Bayan, for example, is quoted by Clary in the New York Times piece as being against the practice, saying that players need to rely on themselves more, which is hilarious to me because he coaches consistently throughout matches. This is not to sound catty or petty. Something I'm also wary of with a lot of these coaches is many of them come from a failed professional career background themselves. And especially on the WTA tour, they have found themselves in roles of prominence off the backs of these young women. Because you can make the claim that coaches are very important to the success of a certain player, maybe in like a one-on-one setting, the way those two people work together. But by and large, and I think most coaches would cop to this too, coaches are not indispensable. They get Mm. changed like a merry-go-round. Right. 
And so I'm also wary and skeptical of these power dynamics on the WTA tour with coaches and uh, especially young WTA players. And giving them more power and visibility, I'm not sure is something I'm here for. Maybe this is a bit of a tangent that I'm going on that's not necessarily germane to the issue at hand, but that's just something that came to mind. Bottom line is this was retracted. Did we say that already? Well, okay. John Wertheim did tweet, I think yesterday, that the US Open has decided not to go ahead with this, this year at least. But I thought I had dreamed that because I was searching online and on Twitter today and I couldn't find anything about this retraction. And the only source I saw was John Wertheim's tweet. So I guess they're not going ahead with this coaching rule change this year, but they may in the future. A couple of actual tennis results from last week. Caroline Garcia won in Nottingham, beating Donna Vekic in the final. A final that was very distressing for Donna Vekic to lose. She broke down on court in her on-court interview afterward. She's a former winner at Nottingham, but her career record in WTA finals is now just 2-6. and six. She's now with uh, Torben Belts as her coach, who, you know, has coached Angelique Kerber to majors. Her career, I think, has seen a real upswing in the past few months. She's had a great year. She just, you know, she lo- she won the first set in that final 6-2, lost the next two sets in tie breaks. It was a heartbreaker. It was a long match. But Caroline Garcia, despite being so up and down, is an excellent grass court player, as we know. So is Donna Vekic. And uh, it was just a little rough to, to see. You know, she told her coach during one of their coaching breaks something like, uh, finals are just not for me. And of course, that's not true. Like, a lot of players go through this. It was her second final in the year after reaching the final in, what was it, St. Petersburg. What I'd hope she'd take away from the experience is that she's playing really well. Mm -hmm. She's had a very good year. She's a consistently top 30 player now. She's on the cusp of potentially breaking through. And I hope that she's able to take encouragement more so than being dispirited from this result. Mm. The other big result of note, Matteo Berrettini. Uh, come on, dude. He's still winning this week. He's into the semifinals. Yeah. So something is going very, very right in the Italian Federation. They have a lot of young players coming up. They have a bunch of players in the top 200 on the men's side. And Berrettini, I think, is blossoming sooner than a lot of people thought, if at all. I think if at all (laughs) is a a key part there because prior to this year, this last few months, he'd been known more for his looks than his game. Right. But he's he's still very young. He's just so big, you know, like physically, he's tall. Okay. (laughs) But as you know, he had an excellent clay season. And now here he comes and wins Stuttgart on grass, beating Felix in the final. He also beat Nikirios, Struff, Hachanov, and he beats Hachanov again this week in Hala in the semifinals. Or sorry, in the quarterfinals. Then we have King Felix, Ojay Aliasim, who continues to rise, has lost in three finals, but the story is that he has made three finals. You know, he made his first ATP final earlier in the season, hasn't won one yet. I feel like it's unusual that someone is predicted as the next big thing when they're 17 years old and it happens years old. and it happens so fast and so it almost felt like we were waiting for a while and then all of a sudden he comes of age and he is just shooting up the rankings he's not even of age yet that's the Isn't surprising he part he's 18 
What kind right. of, of age are you talking he, about? I'm in, talking about like in tennis terms. But in men's tennis, that's still basically a junior. You know, yeah, you're not supposed to be doing is. anything. So he makes the final last week in uh, Stuttgart. And I believe that may have been his first win on grass on the ATP tour. Don't quote oh, me on that. Possibly. Made it all the way to the final. And then again this week at the Queens Club Championships, he's into the semifinals. His kill list so far, Kyrgios in three sets. Well, he started with Dimitrov in the round of 32 in straight sets. And then came back later that same day to beat Kyrgios in three sets. And then he followed that up today with a straight set win over Stefanos Tsitsipas. Again. Yeah, again. I, something like he was 3-0 against him in juniors and he's now 2-0 against him in the pros. Yes. Tsitsipas had everything to say about Felix in his press conference afterward. <laughs> saying that I'd be lucky if I beat him in the next 10 years or something. Maybe I'll have to wait like... A decade before I can beat him. It was apoplectic. This kid it is was, so dramatic. It was very dramatic. Clearly, Felix is in his head. In this head-to-head. Uh-huh. It's it's still so early but in their careers for like, this to be a thing What, for like 18 Stephanos. and 19? Stefanos is ranked number six. He's been to huge finals. He's beaten the big three. There's no reason to, to go there. I appreciate that he's so complimentary of his opponent. Yeah. But it's like... He's like, Felix is just better than me. He's just better than me. I'm like, well, right now it's just a matchup problem. And Felix hit that spot on in his press conference. He said, you know, objectively, Stefanos is the better player. He's ranked higher. He's won more. Maybe this is just a matchup issue for him. Other results from this week, because this, this episode will come out before the tournaments are over. We had Yelena Ostapenko have a resurgent time. It's easy to forget that she was a Wimbledon semifinalist last year because her results in have, since have been, well, pretty bad. Uh, and that's according to her. She said, I've, you know, I've won two consecutive matches for the second time this year and then laughed I at think herself. she said the first time and then she laughed. <laughs> <laughs> she, her record was 8-15 and 15 coming into this tournament. Yes. So she fell to number 40 in the rankings. This week she beat Sviantek, she beat Joanna Kanta, I think she just lost to um, Petra Martic today, right? Yes. Who really deserves a a good win because she suffered a huge heartbreaker against Vondrosheva at the French Open. Ostapenko had been veering into territory of being mocked endlessly and ridiculed. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm happy to see that she's potentially writing the ship right now. Right. And heading back in a direction to where I believe she rightfully should be. Maybe her French Open title came too soon. I don't think we can say that she's not a Grand Slam caliber player. Right. Because I, we watched that well, tournament. We watched her win. We saw yeah. that sort of mental strength and that game that got her to the French Open title. Like, that wasn't an accident. She won the title in Seoul, I think, that year. You know, semifinalist in Wimbledon. She has a lot of game. But there are some glaring holes in it. Which it really is a surf. And she's also incredibly young still. She won that French Open at, what, 20 years old? Mm. That was two years ago. She's 22. Venus Williams was back in the singles fray, singles and doubles fray this week, playing in Birmingham for the first time. It was also one of the few times that either sister had played a warm-up ahead of Wimbledon. Right. I think it was the fourth time in Venus's entire career. And she was asked about that after one of her early round wins. And she said, yeah, it rains a lot here. (laughs) So 
<laughs> I'd rather not have to play the waiting game, essentially, unnecessarily. Yeah. And you can tell why, too, she would take that approach. Because you put Venus on grass, and it's like putting a duck into a pond. <laughs> like, they know exactly what to do. Mm. And she had two impressive wins. First over Sasnovich in straight sets. And then again over Wang Chung in the second round in straight sets. Mm -hmm. Before having to play Ash Barty in the quarterfinals. She lost that match today, 4-6, 3-6. This after Venus was up 4-1 in the first set. Ash Barty, for her part, has transitioned seamlessly from clay to grass. She is saying in interviews that she does not feel pressure. She doesn't even understand the question. And I will not respond to it. <laughs> she beat Donna Vekic in her first match, Jennifer Brady, and then Venus. In, in all pretty non-dramatic matches, which is Ashley Barty's want. Like, you know, she's a pretty low-key player. Did you see that cricket shot she hit? I did not see that. Oh, no. I, th I thought you would, have, you would have noticed that floating around Twitter. I did not Just, see that. Just, uh, no. you know, messing around, uh, swinging her racket, uh, what, perpendicular to the ground? Like a cricket bats person? A bats person. Do you say bats woman in women's cricket? Because it's batsman. No, they say batsman as well. Really? Or batter. Cricket, you got some work to do. They do. Venus, uh, I don't know if it's the grass or whatever, the appearance fee, but like she was giving everything in the on-court interviews. When she is ready, she can absolutely light up a crowd. Like, there, there are very few people like her in tennis. She's absolutely disarming when she's charming. And um, when she's talking to the kids and messing around with the crowd, like, there is, you know, she's Venus Williams. Unless you're a racist, then you cannot be disarmed by oh, Venus Williams. Right. That's right. the only then instance. Then I'm sure you're still complaining about some press conference she skipped in 2008. <laughs> so a couple things to look out for with the tennis results this weekend. Matteo Berrettini... Can he go back-to-back? -back? There's that. Feliciano Lopez of the Paleolithic age, he is in the semifinals. <laughs> or the older millennials. <laughs> he is Roger Federer's age. He's 37. I had thought that Feliciano was getting ready to retire. He was, like, sparking up the yacht. He's the tournament director at Madrid, but he obviously still excels on grass. Mm-hmm. I mean, Feliciano Lopez just recently, last week, had this match-fixing potential scandal on his hands that he had to come out categorically in mm. Queens and say, listen, this is absolutely untrue. So with that hovering over yes. him, he partners Andy Murray. They win their first match. The other thing to look forward to this weekend, how far will that team go in the doubles? And who will Andy Murray partner in mixed doubles at Wimbledon? He's currently soliciting female partners, several of whom already said no, apparently. One they of were which... like, I heard your brother Jamie. I don't want to sacrifice a Grand Slam tournament for my brother <laughs> with his bionic <laughs> hip. So they were like, no thanks. You know what? I'm going to partner with uh, like one of the Bryans or that Skupski guy. or One of the players who turned him down at the French Open was Ash Barty before she went on to win the tournament. And she's two matches from becoming world number one. Mm -hmm. After beating Venus Williams today, after Naomi Osaka lost early in the tournament, 
Ash Barty has to win two matches. She must win the tournament, but if she wins those two matches, she will be your new world number one. Mm -hmm. And that would be a turn of events on the WTA Tour. She currently has a record of like 33 and 5 on the year. All of a sudden, like people thought it came out of nowhere that she won Roland Garros, but that record is unassailable. If she becomes number one this weekend, she'll be the first Australian woman in like 43 years since since the great Yvonne Goulagon. Yeah, so that's on your tennis watching docket this weekend. As we move in to the etc. part of the show to finish off, the WTA has finally gotten aboard the gay train. We've talked on this show before about how appalling it was that the WTA had not embraced its queer history, especially in previous Pride Months. Mm-hmm. Like your entire tour, your existence is owed to the out and trailblazing forces of some of the greatest women athletes in the history of the world. And we do not get that celebrated during this most important queer time of the year. Yeah, it's always been a little bit odd with the WTA. And I think for many years, women's sports organizations resisted being associated with lesbians because it was such it was seen as such a pox on women's sports that it was supposedly overrun by lesbians, by these predatory gay women. Predatory butch lesbians, which were at odds. And it was a way to mock women athletes, to denigrate the sport and their humanity. But this this is a different time. It has literally never been easier for an organization or a corporation to come out in support of Pride. No, and it you really see, hasn't. You see this over the past few years, just the explosion of corporate Pride branding. It's not just that they were afraid of the butch lesbian, right, as being something to undercut the success and the marketing of the sport. I'm, I'm not so sure that if Billie Jean King or Martina Navratilova weren't Kornikova-esque or uh, Sharapova-esque in their femininity that it wouldn't have been embraced sooner. Mm. You know, because the the WT has always struggled to sell its brand. And I think they're, especially on a global level where they've been clearly trying to branch out into global markets in Asia and whatnot, that maybe, I don't know this to be true, but maybe that was a consideration as far as not wanting to to gate up too much Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to not alienate what they perceived as markets that wouldn't be accepting or would be really turned off by that sort of branding but in this day and age where like you said it's never been more safe to court the gay pocket Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know yeah unfortunately it's not it's still not safe to be a queer person but it's safe for banks and telecom companies to yes you know to ask us to spend money with them. We're also in a time where the idea, the binary of butch femme within queer circles is far more elastic than it's ever been. And so you, you're you missing out on, not to say that Mugrutha is a lesbian or queer, but are you totally unaware that she is like an androgynous queer icon? Like there are things that she gives that you know, that that registers with people. Mm. You can sell so many of your players to so many different people without having to necessarily explicitly say, it's gay day. (laughs) (laughs) 
my eyes bugged out when you said Magrutha's name because she is not identified as a gay person. However, she has become this sort of icon, a lesbian icon. And so you see how in celebrity culture and fan culture, we imbue all these qualities in someone because something about them speaks to us. The point here was we wanted to, despite all our grievances with the WT and them dragging their feet and doing this, they've done it. And so I do want to give them kudos. Yes. And I do want to say that they did it very well. It's very easy in this day and age where everybody's got a Pride poster during Pride Month to sell their brand, to have it look run-of-the-mill or generic. Theirs was pinpoint, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, the design was actually really nice. The rainbow across the tennis court, and they brought in their new branding strategy of it takes, hashtag it takes equality. Mm-hmm. Sloan, by the way, offered a nice little Insta story in support of Pride. I like to interpret that as in support of Toronto Pride, especially because she is a Toronto girl now. She was taking selfies in the road with cars passing her in Toronto. Be careful, girl, because like... I almost got run over by a taxi today. She was not the only player who social media to something positive. Madison Keys opened up her pride shoes from Nike mm. on her Instagram. And young Miss Coco Goff, thanks to Chad CC Smooth 13 for pointing this out to us, but she's been on a spree over the last month educating folks. This young teenager educating folks about what Juneteenth is about pride, about all these things, all these layers of oppression. Intersectionality. Thank you. And I am excited to have somebody with that kind of viewpoint and lens with which they view the world at the top levels of women's sport. And boldness. Let me tell you. At such yeah. a young age. This is why I get so upset when people decry the youth and how they're so disengaged because I feel exactly the opposite. We maybe don't approach things the same way, but like these kids are smart and they're engaged and they're looking at the world with eyes open. They just don't look at it the same way that we do necessarily. Right. You just have to find a way to bridge mm-hmm. per se. Every generation has that problem. So we were just about to bump this from the agenda for the third episode in a row. And while we're still not going to get into it, there's one thing I just cannot have go another episode without saying it. This Trinjaliti thing, where he is being labeled the match-fixing snitch, the snitch of the ATP. And there's this piece that was done by Ben Rothenberg that uh, gave voice to Trinjaliti and the stuff that he's going through, the blackballing, the real nasty treatment that he's getting from some of the ATP players. Give a brief synopsis. Brief. Sure. <laughs> brief. Trinjaliti, on the sort of lower levels of the ATP tour like most players, had been approached by match fixers and asked to throw a match. He declined. He approached the Tennis Integrity Unit. And since then, he's been sort of a CI, like a confidential informant, (laughs) a whistleblower. Uh, Three Argentine players have been convicted of match fixing based in part on testimony from Trunjaliti. He did what he was technically obligated to do after he was approached and went to the TIU and said, here's what happened. He was motivated to cooperate. It's not like he was out here entrapping people. No. He was just doing what he was supposed to do. And then you have Sergei Stakovsky, he of the ATP Council, Mm -hmm. 
out here tweeting that there's a thin line between whistleblower and snitch. All depends on who is the judge. Right. Now you tell me how it is tenable that you can have somebody on the ATP council represent the players and at the same time throw one of its own under the bus like that publicly and then come back just like he has in the past with all all levels of fucker he's talked out of pocket on gay people and whatever to then just make it a joke. Say I was misinterpreted or whatever. No. Stakovsky is the gaslighter in chief. We have seen this many, many times with him. It's always either a joke or it was taken out of context or we're too stupid or it was a linguistic issue. Like every single time he says something crazy like this, there is a good explanation from him. He, by most accounts, is a smart guy. People find him very charismatic, apparently. So a lot of people buy the excuses. This was clear. He was obviously casting aspersions on Trinjaliti for doing what he thought was something sort of sleazy. And Trinjaliti has also been accused of cooperating to lessen his own charges. There are allegations that, you know, he was caught and now he's cooperating like with the FBI so he doesn't have to go to tennis jail for it. He denies that vociferously. Like, how can you have somebody like that going rogue on Twitter like that? Like, that is wild to me. Right, but players elect him knowing full well who he is and what he stands for. And just as much as it's shocking that Trinjaliti has not had more support, it's in the same vein shocking that people haven't decried what Stakovsky did. Because to mm. me, that is unforgivable. Right. So Trinjaliti says the women's side doesn't really have this problem, and he blames the ethics in the men's game. He thinks that men's tennis basically has... They got no scruples. Bad morality. Yeah, they got they got no <laughs> scruples. Generally, I like to avoid um, generalizations like that because it's. I don't think it always explains like the complexity of an issue, but it really doesn't matter as far as betting goes because they're looking at like the many many metrics on which you can make money, and those exist in women's tennis too. So I don't know why match fixing is such an insidious issue only in men's tennis. Okay. I hope that was brief enough for y'all because it was way too long for me. <laughs> Moving on. Something that actually I told you earlier about how I have such little room for stuff to actually incense me these days. This incensed me mm. this week. Sanya Mirza being blamed for the abject failure of her husband and his cricket team at the Cricket World Cup. Wild. So the day before India plays Pakistan, if you don't know, Sanya Mirza is Indian. Her husband... Shoaib Malik is Pakistani. They're married. And if you do not know, the India-Pakistan political dynamic is fraught beyond belief. It's been violent in the past. There are many reasons for it. Part of it is over land, Kashmir. And uh, one of the ways in which this political discord is manifested is through sport and through cricket and the many volatile meetings that India and Pakistan have had in the past. In cricket, stadiums have been set on fire before, mid-match. I have a friend at work who is Indian, and we've been talking about this upcoming World Cup for a long time, and he kept saying, joking, that he kept saying that India would actually forfeit that match against Pakistan rather than have to play them, even though it would have been played on a neutral site in England. That's where the World Cup is. He was kind of nonplussed by it because like, yeah, we're good enough. We can stand the loss of those two points and still make the next oh. round. But so you have the the heft of 
this match happening, right? And apparently, Sonia Mirza and Shoaib Malik were photographed going out to dinner the night before this huge match, mm-hmm. right? And there were allegedly three other Pakistan players at that same restaurant, and they were all around a table. And you get this huge backlash against Mirza because the next day, Malik makes a duck. He makes zero. And Pakistan lose poorly. Mind you, was expected. They were expected to lose that match. India is five times a team that Pakistan is in one-day cricket at this at this juncture. She gets blamed for taking him out the night before. She gets scolded for being a terrible mother because her child is in a restaurant where shisha is being smoked. Like, the morality police that was just thrown at Sanya Mirza because of this whole thing was mind-blowing. And she gets it from both sides. It's not just the Pakistanis that are mm. out for her. You have Indian folks who absolutely hate the fact that she's with a Pakistani dude and always got something to say. So she really is... If you were to think of somebody who is the, the perfect illustration for damned if you do, damned if you don't, it's Sanya Mirza. Like, she can do no right for people who are intent on not minding their own goddamn business. Can you ex- explain very briefly what a duck is? I did. I said he scored zero. A zero? Yes. What does a duck mean? It's just uh, a terminology for it. Oh, okay. So, like, uh, for example, you swing and you miss, and the ball hits the stumps on your first ball. That's that, a duck? That's a that's a duck, but it's also a golden duck. <laughs> a golden duck? A golden duck. duck is when you're dismissed on your very first ball. Oh, so it wasn't the first ball. For Shoaib Malik, I believe it was his second ball. Oh, okay. He just didn't get any runs. No runs. Okay. Got it. Thank you, because a lot of people don't even know what cricket is. That's on them. I'm just asking you, you know, educate the children. I said a duck is zero. Uh, (laughs) Why is it called a duck? Oh my god. We're moving on. Caroline Wojniacki got married. To who? J.J. Watt? David Lee. Who's J.J. Watt? J.J. Watt is a football player. Does she date him? I, I, I don't know. David Lee played for the Knicks. David Lee, drafted by the Knicks, played for the Knicks. Ended up playing a few years for Golden State as well as San Antonio. One of my favorite basketball players being a Knicks fan. Oh, I did not know that. You did? You okay. just forgot? I am standing R.J. Barrett from Mississauga. Yes. Like, full stan. Number not three only, pick going to the Not only Knicks. did he cry on his father's shoulder yesterday in the draft, he also spoke French in press. And that said, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then he left. They were like, oh, you can go. And he's like... Yo, I'm a Nick. Wow. <laughs> I'm also standing that young man who wore the long gold robe over his white uh, shirt and mm-hmm. pants. I believe that was a number five pick. I don't remember his name. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be helpful to learn his name yes, in the future. I will. I will. I've never watched a draft before, so give me some slack. Uh, but I Caroline, told... this is about Caroline's yes. marriage. To David Lee, who was a former basketball player. Mm-hmm. Serena was there. The two Red Wanskas were there, and Angelique Kerber. Olympia weasels her way into all the pictures. Somebody tweeted that Serena really got to learn when to leave the kid at home. <laughs> and I... <laughs> uh, I, had a, I got a laugh. Like, okay. I'm not going to say yay or nay, but I got a laugh. <laughs> it seemed like a hell of a fun party. It says here that you are going to ask me a question. Yes. In honor of Pride Month, this is something that has been percolating since the start of the month, and it was given forward movement by the release of Taylor Swift's latest video. And I wanted 
to not necessarily ask you, but have a discussion with you about where we are. And you kind of alluded to it mm. earlier in the show when we we're talking about the WTA and its lack of embracing its queer history. I was a little bit annoyed because you were getting ahead of oh, yourself. Oh, I jumped the gun. But I didn't know what the question you was. You didn't. But given that we are in a place where it's never been more easy or desirable to court the gay dollar, to engage with queer politics for companies, musicians, everybody in the corporate world, locally or globally, to engage with for-profit queerness. Do you feel pandered to? Do you feel that it's something that you welcome? Do you feel old because of it? Do you feel <laughs> um, that you're just a miserable old piece of shit? Like, these are things that I've been struggling with because... I would say choices A, B, and C. Because no. I, I find myself being a little bit resentful of it. And I was, I spent days as I walk around Toronto, drive around Toronto, see images on the internet, everybody talking about it. I feel like it's not a unique experience to me that this is happening everywhere. I've never seen so much pride baiting as I have this year. It's incredible. Yeah, like yeah it, this year seems it unique. It expanded like yeah. 50 fold. Like I'm totally inundated. You go to department stores and there is like a pride section. There's like pride underwear at Winners. That was <laughs> wild to me. Winners is like a Canadian TJ Maxx. And you did not buy me any. It's, it's a big question. And I'm at the point where, like, I'm at an age where I'm thinking about people younger than me. And I want things to be easy for them. I want things to be easier for them. Does this visibility make young queer kids' lives easier? Maybe. I don't know. In some cases, maybe it does. In a city like Toronto, uh, yeah. Yeah, things are getting easier for young queer kids. In Kansas or in Idaho, I have no idea. I think it's helpful to the extent that... It helps the most vulnerable people among us in our in our communities. And I'm not sure that it does. And so now in 2019, in Toronto, for example, in our microcosm, our queer community is is fighting on a lot of fronts. So we're fighting amongst ourselves. A few years ago, Pride Toronto disinvited uniformed police to Pride. Um, this is in the midst of not only policing of communities of color, but also an entire decade of ignoring a serial killer well, in, that, our, in our Toronto gay village. It predated that, and then we found out. Right. Basically, queer men of color had been disappearing for a decade. The Toronto police insisted for many years that there was no connection. And finally, finally, because one of the victims had a lot of friends. He happened to be white. He had friends who mobilized. He was killed, but because of his connections people started caring. You know, his friends did the work on his behalf. Our queer village has seen a lot of violence. And the thing is like Bank of Montreal and RBC and Toronto Fire Department and you know, whatever corporate or public entity you can imagine has a float in our pride parade. But like there are some very serious divisions within our community going on, not to mention what's going on outside of it. You know, we're probably gonna have Nazis at Pride this year. What's your point? Every Pride has Nazis yes. now, okay. in 2019. Well, what's your point? The point is that sort of corporate acknowledgement doesn't help those things. It mm. doesn't touch them, it doesn't understand them. 
straight people can feel really good about it. And I think there are a lot of good things about it, but it doesn't doesn't touch those issues that are going to fester forever if we don't talk about it. This is to me this is capital acknowledging that we buy things, which is crazy to me that people didn't realize that gay people bought shit before. <laughs> like, you know who did? Absolute vodka since like 1977. They knew <laughs> that there were a bunch of successful gay people with no kids that had disposable income. Mm-hmm. It's called a dink. Double yes. income, no kid. I'm somewhat resentful of that. This whole idea that I'm now somebody that can be targeted to spend money. Okay, fine. Whatever. I can deal with that. I get how capitalism works. So we're just like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. I get how capitalism works. My fear is, and it was especially hit on the head by this Taylor Swift video, that the the pinkwashing of our history almost whereby we get sanitized so much into the mainstream that our messages get lost that she can have a video where she can gripe about haters and trolls coming at her in seven in the morning and in the next breath try and equate that to gays being picketed with signs uh you know it's like a yeah and the, 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 the real issue here for me, and it was something that I grappled with for days upon days upon days, and then I finally came across this uh, article, and it's written by Spencer Kornhaber from The Atlantic. And the thing that really struck a chord and was able to put into words what I've been feeling was when he wrote, The fear for many queer people is less that allies might profit off them than that allies might change and defang what queerness means. The A in terms such as LGBTQIA+, typically stands for asexual or aromantic, but it's often mistaken for ally, which is a sign of the danger here. People with no personal stake, facing no germane struggle of their own, not only join the club, but also begin to define it. If heterosexuals become overly important in the gay movement, then it becomes harder to talk, with precision, about what the movement is actually for. This guy's a really good writer. Yes. First of all. And like you said, he articulated a lot of things that I wanted to say, but I was sort of overcome by polemics. Because there is there is merit in what Taylor is doing. Yes. And there's and she understands that it's more than just a statement. She's tying this to donations to GLAD, to like a political project. I don't know if she fully understands what the political project is, but it's not just selling her album. There's I some, have to give credit for that. There's some who push back about this whole idea of the outsider swooping in and saying that Taylor Swift is bisexual. That may be so. I don't know. What? Not my place to say. Is, excuse me. No, there are people is who say that. Is she an acknowledged out queer person? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm just saying that there is that defense of her. <laughs> right, but you have to own that publicly if you want to profile as a queer person right like okay i don't know what goes on in her life and it's it's not her responsibility to tell us right i i don't have a horse in this race like i'm not a i'm not a taylor swift fan or detractor i'm just you're a detractor well i'm pretty agnostic when it comes to taylor swift that's not true i know no listen i know maybe i can name you like five songs of hers all of which you hate you're really ruining the point here (laughs) the point is I don't wish her any ill will at all. The The conversation around Taylor is so bound up in fans or haters. Like, that's it. And unfortunately, I think that's how she sees a lot of 
her day-to-day existence, which I get because she gets a lot of haters, right? But to conflate a millionaire pop star's haters to what queer people endure on the daily is where things start to fall apart, as you alluded to. Because in this video, the placards that are written, and she, she has a line in the song making fun of them, words are misspelled, they're kind of benign, they're kind of stuff that you can laugh at, like, ah, oh my god, they're so stupid, when in fact, in this article, as they point out, a lot of the times, these, these signs are God hates fags. Or like fucking die, mm. or these people showing up at people's funerals, at weddings, like being really, really hurtful, right, and causing real serious damage. And so this is like a, it's this balance between shedding light on an issue, co-opting an issue, and demeaning an issue. And then you have this cavalry of important gay figures in this video. It's it's sensory overload. It was, I watched it the first time, and it was a mindfuck. Because you're trying to parse through it and you get these little signals of things pinging that like, okay, this this does not seem right. But you can't really pinpoint in the moment right. because... It's like, oh, there's, there's Sierra. There's Ellen there's, DeGeneres yeah. getting a tattoo. There's this, there's that. And it was a lot. And that's cool. Like, I don't want to... This is bigger than Taylor, right? This is so much bigger than Taylor Swift. This isn't about sort of trashing her. It's about how queer movements are kind of defanged when they're made mainstream and that's like any movement but it's one thing if those those changes are brought about by queer people and their own struggle right it's totally different when it's somebody shining light on an issue tangentially while their main gripe is the haters and also despite directing you to sign this petition or donate to glad they're still lining their pockets and and the rising tension of this video is the oh Katy Perry feud, that was, which is resolved at the end of the video. That was like, the real kicker. Who cares? It was the kicker. Who cares? P- did people care about this in 2012? I don't know. Maybe. I certainly didn't. But in 2019, I sure as hell don't. On the face of it, it's a feel-good moment. Like, <laughs> And there's layers of stuff to talk about, about the way societies pin successful women against mm-hmm. each other. Right, but it's... That's not this. Fully self-interested when it comes to Taylor. You know? Okay. But I'm just saying, it placed at the end of this video and within the context of the visual symbols there are many words i could use to describe it but i won't (laughs) you have all these incredible queer artists and icons being subsumed by taylor and her multi-directional messages and is it more is it does it become a celebration like it didn't feel like a celebration of queerness or queer issues to me and that's where i felt really uneasy and questioning my place in viewing this like am i am i just a relic at this point like has <laughs> has the movement passed me by no i don't think it has to do with age because i'm also here questioning the participation of some of these people mm. like why are you doing this it reads less of celebration of your place as a trailblazing queer artist and icon than it does queer minstrelsy mm. to be honest like it it was it was a very fraught viewing experience for me. And I do want to, to say uncategorically that I absolutely feel that Taylor Swift is well-meaning. And she's coming from a place of being criticized for being entirely apolitical in her career. Right. And she's made great strides to, to rectify that if indeed it's something that needed to be rectified. Right? Uh, Yeah, she is like stepping out a little bit by being actively political. She's made great strides in Tennessee, her home state, agitating for reform 
for women, for gays, whatever. But I was disappointed, and I was also disappointed by Mariah Carey, because at the start of this Pride Month, she mm. tweeted out a link to her merch, saying, Happy Pride, go get your merch. Like, frankly, I mean this with no disrespect, bitch, are you donating some of that proceeds to, like, the Trevor Project or something? Like, you're just openly here, blatantly selling Pride stuff now this year, because like everybody else, it's safe now, it's safest. You've done great things for gay people in the past. You've been more of a, like, a silent, like, knowing ally. You mm. know, like, you haven't been the most vocal person, but, like, we knew. Right. You wrote songs, we knew, whatever. But now, to be so blatantly, like, trying to reap the profit without giving back. Like, that that shit rubs yeah, me the wrong it's a way. a little unseemly. And there's that element of it. Like, you can say, go and sign this petition, go and donate to GLAD, but are you matching GLAD's donation? Like, matching the donation mm. to GLAD? Like... I need more concrete stuff know than which, the pandering. Which organization is doing which type of work? Like I and, need more. I need more specificity. Yeah. I need more work to be done. I'm not here to give out blue ribbons for participation when it comes yeah. to queerness. Y'all are rich. Like do the work. I uh, I should say I've been listening to the Making Gay History podcast for for years now. I think they've they're in their third season. The host Eric Marcus has been compiling an oral history of the LGBTQ movement for many years now, for like 30 years. And this season, in June, they're playing, they're doing an entire series about 50 years after Stonewall, and they have primary sources recorded in 1969 from people who were at the Stonewall riots, including Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, and it is so fascinating. And those divisions within our community that we talk about now were there back then 50 years ago stonewall was such a fascinating thing because there were white gay men there there were lesbians there there were queer trans people of color before we use the word trans they identified as drag queens or transvestites or whatever there was such a diversity in the people who were there at the very first stonewall raid i would encourage anyone interested in the history to listen to this podcast and you can see so many parallels to what we are still fighting about amongst ourselves, not only with the rest of society. On that note, we will take the opportunity to plug our Pride episode from last year, Pride is Political, a history of LGBT folks in tennis. Mm. Still probably the thing that we're most proud of that we've done on this show. Yeah. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review, specifically on iTunes. It's one of the tangible ways... We say this all the time, but it is one of the tangible ways you can help build the profile of the show. Five stars, always preferred. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can listen to us on Spotify now. We've noticed that a few people have have been listening to us on Spotify. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how to use Spotify. Well, we don't have a subscription. Add us to a playlist or something. Can you do that? You can, but we we don't got a subscription. I saw MJ Rodriguez from Pose issued her own playlist. I would like her to add us to her playlist. (laughs) Just a a humble suggestion. Uh, Yeah, because we love Pose. And uh, if you are not watching Pose, watch Pose. Mm -hmm. And I know that she's got 80s and 90s lover man and lover woman R&B on that playlist. (laughs) Which is, is certainly your milieu. It certainly is. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We're at the body serve on both Twitter and Instagram, and 
we will see you for our Wimbledon preview in about a week. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.